You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hi, everyone. It's Mikey and Paul here from Heroes and Hellers. Great, mate. Good day, mate. How are you? I'm excellent. Tickety-boo, as my mate Tony Squires would say. Now, speaking of mates, we've had a whole bunch of really good mates in for uh, our new format, our new episodes. Yes. So we thought we'd take the opportunity to, to look back and some extra helpings from some ideas they've sparked in us and some stuff that wouldn't have fitted the episode, but we think it's worth having a chat about. That's right. Yeah, we had uh, Tracy Spicer, we had Jesse Joyce, and of course we started off with Otto English, or his real name, Andrew, Andrew Scott. Scott. Yeah, one of the fake heroes that he really wanted to put the boot into, and the one that he did put the boot in in his book, is the other great Scott, Scott of the Antarctic. But there, actually, there's another figure in that story, Mikey, yeah. which Otto mentions in his book, which I think is more fascinating than all of them. And that's a guy from the Orkney Isles, off the, off the coast, top coast of Scotland, yeah. by the name of John Ray. John Ray, never heard of him. Okay, so you remember from our own episode on the Arctic and Arctic exploration, we said that in many ways it started with that slightly different goal of finding the fabled Northwest Passage. Yes. Now, if you remember, we talked about how the great European sea powers, they were desperate to find a way through from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It didn't involve you know, going all the way around South America and the dreaded Cape Horn. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't hear Cape Horn without giggling, <laughs> but, but do go on, mate. Yeah, the, all these early expeditions, obviously, they were unsuccessful in finding this Northwest Passage, and most of them turned into one sort of disaster or another, with the biggest howler of them all, I suppose, coming in the 19th century in the shape of the great expedition led by Captain Sir John Franklin uh-huh. in 1845. Now, Franklin's a big name because although he was a successful veteran of you know, things like the Battle of Trafalgar, yeah. amongst others, he actually managed to disappear on this expedition with both his ships, yeah, HMS Erebus, HMS Terror, 129 men, and despite almost 40 different rescue missions being sent out by the British government to find the party, not a trace of them had ever turned up until, that's what I want to talk to uh, about today, this guy called John Ray. So John Mikey, he was born in the Orkneys in 1813. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there, Mikey, but... No, um, but I've said it on telly. The word craggy springs to mind. <laughs> well, look, I went on a family holiday as a child to the Orkneys, and I must admit... <laughs> you kids had so much fun. I know, my dad took us to all the best places. But, it, yeah, look, it did. It blew a gale the whole time. I think we probably saw the sun once in yeah. 10 days. And anyway, it's a fascinating place. It really is worth a trip if you ever do get a chance to go there because they've actually recently been digging up some even more significant archaeology. But anyway, we'll talk about it another time. Mm-hmm. John Ray, he was originally trained as a surgeon and he'd taken to the seas as a ship's doctor and he'd arrived in Canada, um, but he was so successful he decided to stay as a doctor in one of the many trading forts on Hudson Bay. Oh, right. We've talked about that before. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The entrance, if you like, to what everyone hoped would be this Northwest Passage over the top and into the Pacific. But unlike most of his contemporaries, this guy, John Ray, he didn't keep himself to the company of his fellow Europeans. Instead, he was very happy to befriend the local 
Cree tribe. Yeah, he learned their language. He started picking up some of their secrets. Yeah, and how to survive in such a hostile environment. Yeah, here he's soon building igloos, making his own snowshoes, using the local dress, animal furs, sealskins, all that kind of thing. Hunting caribou. You know, yeah, and he was able to sledge across great distances and start looking at parts that none of the other Europeans out there had managed to get their eyes on. In fact, he, he soon received his own nickname from the Inuit of Agluka, which means the man of big steps. You know, that gives you an idea of how far he got. So Franklin, he'd been lost, he'd been marooned. And if you remember in that earlier episode, we talked about how he may have turned, him and his crew may have turned to cannibalism yeah. in an effort to survive. Well, Ray, in contrast, yeah, he's actually successfully mapping out great stretches of the Hudson Bay coast, the islands offshore and the rivers that feed into the Great Basin. And he's actually achieving what Franklin, in many ways, what Franklin set out to do. But of course, the powers that be, they didn't really like this wacky Scotsman, you know, who in their eyes had committed the ultimate sin of going native. Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But he was so successful, they really had no choice but to ask him eventually to join one of their search and rescue missions that they were sending out to scour for any signs of the Franklin catastrophe. And eventually in 1854, John Ray actually does come across a group of local Inuit who claim to have met a party of disorientated sailors hauling a boat aground on King William Island. And when John Ray interrogates them, they explain that they returned the following year after their hunting season, but this time, rather than finding disoriented sailors, they come upon graves and dead bodies right. who they can only assume were one and the same. So Ray, of course, yeah, he was sure that this must be the remnants of Franklin's original expedition. And sure enough, among the items the Inuit have salvaged from the dead men's belongings was a silver plate with Franklin's name engraved on the back, which you, know, you would think would be good news, except, <laughs> except for the fact that yeah, nobody back at Royal Navy HQ, none of them would believe a word Ray or the Inuit would say because part of their account, as I said before, included these bits about finding evidence of human bones having been cooked, you know, having been cut, having had the marrow sucked out of them. Uh, so what you're saying is the Brits wouldn't accept that other Brits had descended to cannibalism. That's right. There's no way the Abelty is going to say that one of their own, one great as Captain Franklin himself, would allow such dastardly behaviour. Oh, wow. And so Ray's reports, they're all rubbished. And he's branded an out-and-out -out liar, not just by the Navy, but also by Franklin's wife, Jane, and even such high society figures as Charles Dickens himself. And he actually went to write in his weekly column in the papers that such shameful accusations were a slur on Franklin's name and that of his crew, and a slur on good British seamen everywhere. And I quote, in their fortitude, their lofty sense of duty, their courage, and their religion. Oh, dear. Good old Charlie. Oh, dear. <laughs> he didn't hold back, did he? <laughs> That's right, because as we also now know, Dickens essentially was a bit of a pompous prick. <laughs> and, and he was proved to be so when more modern expeditions in the 1980s and 90s finally recovered the full remains of Franklin's expedition, and Julie did discover these bones with the saw marks and cut marks and broken in half 
with the bone marrow sucked out of them. Also, what you're saying is these remains had obviously been butchered. Yeah, that's right. And the Inuit had seen them. They told John Ray, and it was true. And they, uh, we now know that from these expeditions in the 80s. But the reason I'm so interested in it, Mikey, mm-hmm. is, of course, that Ray and his approach to learning from the Inuit, right, you know, rather than dismissing them, mm-hmm. that was also later vindicated in many ways by Scott's expedition and Scott himself, or at least by Amundsen, because just as Scott was suffering and spluttering dressed up in his Burberry Macintosh as we talked about you know keeping his stiff upper lip Amundsen like Ray was dressed in animal furs and seal skins was an eager student of all the Inuit techniques and of course he was the winner to the race of the South Pole Mm. but there is a happy ending to it Mikey as I now understand it there is a statue of John Ray finally erected in the Orkneys he's getting some of the recognition that he does deserve at least from the local populace so so I think it might be time that I head on there and have a look and I'll leave Charles Dickens and his trolling to another episode. G'day folks, so the second guest we had in this part of the series, as we said, was Tracy Spicer. And look, if you do get the chance to have a read of her book, Man Made, it's digging into the real story behind AI and the implications it's going to have on all of us. It's an excellent read particularly on what the dangers may well be, not just to women and the gay community, but basically anyone who's not a white alpha male tech brand, (laughs) as far as we can see. But put it this way, there's a reason why if you asked Alexa if she's a feminist, up until very, very recently, she'll say, hmm, I don't have an answer for that. Is there anything else I can help you with? Yeah, so that's some of the ideas that Tracy... uh, That's that's in Tracy's book, isn't it? That's in Tracy's book. So have a look at that if you can. But in the meantime, Mikey, you wanted to pick up on something she was talking about with Ada Lovelace and the connection with Lord Byron. Yes, indeed. I'm actually going to talk about an alpha male. (laughs) And and Byron wasn't. But here's the thing. I mean, apart from studying his poetry at uni, I didn't really know much about Byron. Mm. And I want to talk about Byron and his animals. Okay. He he was no chop as a dad, but he was actually, well, a weird pet owner. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Before I get that, here's one thing I didn't realise. His dad, and this is maybe where Byron got it from. His dad was known as Mad Jack Byron. Yes. Who was a gambler and a scandal. Now, he dies when Byron's three. Right. Now, when Byron's, oh, about seven years later, his uncle dies. And when his uncle dies, that's when he gets the title. Ah, yes. Dickens Lord Byron, yeah. yeah. He also gets his uncle's debts. Oh. But he does get some nice bits of property. But here's the thing. He loved animals, which brings me to the pet bear story. Okay. You would have been to uh, Trinity College in, y- in yes, Cambridge. Yes, bo- both of them, uh, Oxford and Cambridge. Oh, there he is. Well, this one's at Cambridge. Well, he was there from 1805 to 1808. Now, the college had banned dogs, and he was annoyed because he, he wanted to have his pet bulldog with him, the dog with the charming nickname of Smut. Mm. However, he could have his dog. There were no rules against having a pet bear. <laughs> right. And he argued, and they agreed. And in 1807, he wrote to his friend Elizabeth Piggott, I have a new friend, the finest in the world, a tame bear. When I brought him here, they asked me what to do with him, and my reply was, he should sit for a fellowship. <laughs> now, there are reports maybe the bear was in his figment of his imagination, but we do know he owned a bear. Right. We did, in fact, because when he left the college, the bear did come with him to the home of uh, Newstead Abbey, and I got a new play chum, Byron's pet wolf. <laughs> this makes Caligula and his horse look, yeah. <laughs> Mate, it gets wilder. Percy Shelley writes about it. He visited Byron in Italy mm. and saw, and I'm quoting here, 10 horses, eight enormous dogs, three monkeys, five cats, an eagle, a crow, and a falcon. 
Then there's a PS. I have just met on the grand staircase five peacocks, two guinea hens, <laughs> and an Egyptian crane. Wow. Shelley also notes that apart from the horses, all the other animals, I'm quoting here, walk about the house, which every now and then resounds with their unarbitrated quarrels. <laughs> now, during his lifetime as well, he was said to have owned a wolf. Mm. Oh, I mentioned the wolf. A fox, mm. a parrot, a crocodile. A crocodile? A, yes. And a honey badger, one of the scariest animals in the world, and a goat with a broken leg. Now, his most beloved pet was his Newfoundland. I'm going to say Boatswain, but I'm, I'm getting that wrong. Right Boatswain, yeah, yeah. What? Close. It looks like Boatswain. Don't worry, Mikey. Yeah, but Boatswain. I think that drives me up the wall with English spelling. It, it's Particularly not, naval terms, yeah. 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 It's, it's like that pub at Oxford Street of the Beecham, which I called the Bow Shop for years, <laughs> until they eventually changed it. Anyway, so the dog's called Boatswain. Yes. Well, anyway, the poor dog uh, contracted rabies, and Byron nursed the dog without any fear of catching the disease himself. Right. Now, when the dog died in 1808... He had a magnificent monument built on the grounds of Newstead, and he gives us the famous epitaph to a dog. So ah, yes. why don't we go stands up a stands with this? All right, let me have a quick look. Okay, yeah, got it. Okay. Epitaph to a dog. Near this spot are deposited the remains of one who possessed beauty without vanity, strength without insolence, courage without ferocity, and all the virtues of man without his vices. This praise, which would seem unmeaningly flattery if inscribed over human ashes, is but just a tribute to Boson, a dog. Who was born in Newfoundland, May 1803, and died in Newstead, November 18th, 1808. When some proud son of man returns to earth, unknown to glory but upheld by birth, the sculptor's art exhausts the pomp of woe, and storied urns record who rests below. When all is done, upon the tomb is seen, not what he was, but what he should have been, the poor dog in life, the firmest friend, the first to welcome, the foremost to defend, whose honest heart is still his master's own, whose labours, fights, lives for him alone. Unhonoured falls, unnoticed, unnoticed, all his worth. Denied in heaven, his soul to be held on earth. While man, vain insect, hopes to be forgiven and claims himself a sole-exclusive heaven... O man, thou's feeble tenant of the hour, debased by slavery or corrupt by power, who knows thee well, must quit thee with disgust, degraded mass of animated dust. Thy love is lust, thy friendship all a cheat, thy tongue hypocrisy, thy heart deceit, by nature vile, ennobled but in name. Each kindred brute might bid thee blush for shame. Ye who behold perchance the simple urn, pass on, it matters none your wish to mourn. To mark a friend's remains, these tones arise. I never knew but one, and here he lies. Beautiful. Yeah, no one's ever going to write that about a cat. All right, which brings us to our last guest of three, Jesse Joyce, and of course his book about the man who shot the man who shot the man. Uh, and you've got something else to add to that, Mikey. Yes, we were talking about Boston Corbett, the guy who shot John Wilkes Booth, who of course shot Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Now, Corbett had been a milliner. Yes. And the use of mercury in the millinery process was one of the reasons why he was mentally unstable. It's where the phrase mad as a hatter comes from. Mm. Now, I thought, well, if we're going to talk about mercury... We've got to talk about syphilis, mate. Ah, okay, right, yeah. There's a medieval proverb, a night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. 
Right. Now, even before syphilis had actually been officially recognized in Europe, a guy called Guy de Chilac, a personal papal physician, had been singing Mercury's praise as a general cure-all right. in the mid-14th century. Okay. But the first time it's used as an effective treatment for Cupid's disease, as it was known, was by the famous physician Paracelsus. Now, Paracelsus mm-hmm. was a Swiss guy also an alchemist, mm. but also, too, was one of the first people to say, you know what, probably shouldn't treat open wounds with cow dung and feathers. <laughs> probably a good idea to wash it out first. In yes. fact, a lot of modern medicine can be traced to him. Right. That being said, he was a little overfond of the old mercury. <laughs> right. If you're a syphilitic patient under his care, you might find yourself drinking it, inhaling mm. it, okay. having it added to an already dangerously hot bath, or even as a potion to rub onto your ulcerous skin. But did it work? No. (laughs) See, over time, even he said, stop drinking it. Right. Well, one of the main problems is that the symptoms of mercury poisoning Mm -hmm. pretty much the same symptoms as syphilis. Oh, dear. So stinking ulcers in the mouth, teeth falling out, kidneys shutting down, (laughs) along with unbalanced mental state and difficulty in breathing. Right, and they didn't realise because they... But before we put syphilis behind us, I have to mention this one, which, which did come after him. Yeah. The strangest prescription for syphilis, and this did involve mercury as well. Well, in the words of the immortal spinal tap, they took it up to 11. <laughs> if a patient was so inclined and could actually afford it, they could, under doctor's instructions, spend most of their time convalescing in a pair of underpants that had been soaked in mercury. What? Yeah, not good. <laughs> so I think that's us done now, isn't it, Polly? Well, it, it would be, but I just want to go back to... Otto and his book again one last time, if you don't mind. Because oh, of before, course. Before we finish, there is another point he makes um, in his book about heroes and fake heroes, which I really think is worth expanding upon. Yeah. It's what Otto English calls societal heroes, which can actually be very different to howlers like you know Coco Chanel, who completely reinvent their backstory to hide their skeletons. Yeah. And it's different, again, from figures like JFK, who are very happy for others to, to do the oh, yes. reinventing to change the narrative. Otto explains that societal heroes, he believes these are more types of figures in history who are made into heroes, almost you know, with a mythical status, not because they're egomaniacs or bullshit, you know, but because the society that they grow up in is at such a point in time whereby they need ah. these heroes and they need that person to be their hero as a sort of salve to the national Psyche. Now, you know, one great example is Nelson, of course, you know, who epitomized in many ways everything the Victorian establishment wanted to see of themselves in the mirror, you know, the bravery, the gallantry, and the romance. <laughs> and look, while what drove them to erect such a big phallic column underneath his statue might be up for debate, yeah. but, but most observers would agree, you know, Trafalgar, the Battle of the Nile, Nelson did act pretty heroically, and the adoration was mostly hmm. deserved. But there's another figure. Otto touches upon, which I think is a classic howler dressed as hero, and that's Francis Drake, or Sir Francis Drake, Ah. as all his biographers endlessly tell us we have to call him. So, okay, just to deal with the facts, Mikey, yes, of course, you know, Drake was an important figure in Elizabethan England, but to make him out as a great explorer who returned triumphantly to defend his queen in her hour of greatest need, that's to gild the lily, in my opinion, just a bit too much, you know, because for a start, Drake wasn't an explorer, he was a slave trading pirate. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And actually, I know this firsthand, Mikey, because once upon a time, I was lucky enough to live in the Dominican Republic. And up there on the north coast, I was living in a house 
next to a place called Escos Bay, Scottish Bay. And that is where Drake himself actually used to hide his ships to launch his attacks out onto the passing Spanish um, gold bullion ships. It's like, like his pirate base. That's right, yeah. And that's why they're Spanish. They called him El Drac the Dragon because for most of his career he was nothing but a, you know, a two-bit privateer who, because it suited the English government at the time, was given the royal seal of approval you know, in return for doing damage to England's great enemy and rival, namely Spain. I'm also assuming, too, that uh, Queen Elizabeth took her cut, sort of mob boss style. Very much so. And when I say he was, you know, this dodgepot scumbag, even Drake himself was quite happy to offer up evidence to prove it. Because, you see, with his cousin, John Hawkins, Mm. Drake was actually a key player in the triangular trade, as it was known, which took African slaves to the Americas in return for goods to be sold back, back in England. Yeah, And we know... Drake himself personally enslaved 1,000 slaves onto his ships. You know, that, that's mm. in his captain's logs. And while he personally didn't probably kill himself any of these slaves, certainly up to 3,000 Africans seem to have been killed in the process. See, I think that's a really important point to make because, you know, a privateer, a swashbuckler, mm. it's sort of, you know, it's a bit romantic, you know, you know a little bit Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, yeah, 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 exactly. Whereas being a slave trader <laughs> is a different kettle of fish. That's right. And there's another example when his brother, Thomas, you know, who's also a thief, murderer, stroke pirate, whatever term you'd rather use, his brother steals all the cargo from the ship of a rival, a guy called Thomas Dougherty, in the late 1570s. And this brother was so dastardly and underhand about it, even Drake's own men threatened to mutiny. So what does Francis do? Does he turn on his brother? No, he hauls Doherty up before the beak on trumped-up charges of treason and witchcraft. Witchcraft? Yeah, and ensures he can never speak out against his brother again by having Doherty's head cut off. And yes, you've guessed it, Mikey, Drake himself, he was the judge and jury that called for the cross-examination. You're kidding me. So it was basically nothing more than a pirate's court. A pirate kangaroo court. Exactly, Mikey. And there's actually a really cringeworthy aside to this bit of the story, which I think sums up Drake pretty well. You see, Doherty, he was actually semi-nobility himself. And so Drake started to panic that he'd actually you know, sort of overstep the mark by you know, giving this guy's head the chop. And he's particularly worried that one of Doherty's allies, a guy called Christopher Hatton, who'd been a pretty powerful sponsor of Doherty's expeditions, well, Drake gets <laughs> pretty scared that Hatton's going to be out for revenge. And so he changes the name of his flagship pirate vessel from Pelican to Golden Hind, which, you know, the name, oh, right. the name we all know, yeah. which is actually, Mikey, that's quite a bigger deal than it sounds. Because if any of our listeners out there are sailors, they'll know that it's quite considered to be very bad luck to change a vessel's name. And you'd only do it for a very, very good reason. I actually worked with a guy on radio who had a green speedboat called Stud. And when we made fun of him, he said, that was the name of the boat when I bought it, and it's bad luck to change it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. But not for Drake, because he changes it to the Golden Hind, which is the key feature on the crest of the Hatton family crest. Oh, right. And so he promises to let Hatton bask in his glory, just as long as no one ever mentions what happened to Doughty again. All right, so that's his early life. And even with the coming of the Armada, Mikey, once again, the veil is quite quickly lifted. Of course, you know, you know, we should fully acknowledge that he was one of the first Englishmen to sail around the world, you know, no small feat. But that doesn't mean we have to believe everything we hear about his bowls exploits, you know, Plymouth Hoe to defeat the Armada. Firstly, 
and perhaps most significantly, it's important to remember that Drake was by no means the man in charge of England's defences at the time against the Armada. Rather, that was Lord Howard. He was the admiral in charge of the fleet, and it was him, Howard, more than anyone else, who enabled the English Navy not just to seize the day, but win the win. And when we're speaking of seizing the day, we should also consider the input of Queen Elizabeth herself, you know, with that great body of woman but heart and stomach of a king speech at Tilbury, which probably did (laughs) 10 times more than anything else in maintaining the troops' morale and ensuring there was no quick raising of the white flag. And this is all without mentioning the 26th of July in 1575, Mikey, when Francis Drake, Sir Francis Drake, along with another of the Queen's favourites, the Earl of Essex, and a nobleman by the name of Sir John Norris, they forced their way into a castle on Rathlin Island off the coast of Ireland, a castle that's been used as sanctuary by the McDonald's of Antrim. And the three men proceed to lead their troops into massacre 600 people including women and children. So how come he has been held up as such a great hero? That's the question that Otto um, asks and, 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 and tries to explain in his book. Yeah, because as Otto sees it, sometimes there seems to be this national need to create societal heroes to line up with the needs and the narrative and the day. And the, it seems that the big Drake myth is actually conjured up and really given a good stir by Victorian. I was going to say Victorians. <laughs> the Victorians again, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because of course, you know, this chest full of imperial yeah. pomp and backing up from the victories of the, over the French at Trafalgar and Waterloo, the Victorians are really pushing the Britannia rule the way right. stick, you know, yeah. as hard as they can. And with books like Froud's History of England and novels like the Kingsley's classic Westward Ho, you know, imperial male naval protagonists mm. were just what the scriptwriter was ordering. Yeah, so suddenly, after what had previously been quite an up-and-down relationship with Drake, because you've got to remember, Drake, yeah, he tried to make himself respectable as the mayor of Plymouth, member of parliament, all that kind of thing, but not all of his contemporaries, it seemed, were convinced. But now, suddenly in the 19th century, yes, Drake is the chosen one, you know, a paragon of English daring do, and a sort of patron saint of the empire, as Otto describes him. So like in the same way that 19th century Americans were rewriting the story of Columbus. Exactly, yeah, because now Britain, or at least England, it needed the hero myth of a swashbuckling sea captain, and Drake fitted the glove beyond these mythmakers' dreams. You know, he even had his own supernatural local legend which they could dust off and position front and centre for the papers of the day to lap up. Because, you see, there was this old wives' tale, Mikey, regarding Francis Drake, and one of his possessions, a small snare drum. (laughs) And the story goes that this authentic memento had been housed in Buckland Abbey. It promised to beat whenever England was in peril or threatened with invasion. (laughs) And you'd be glad to hear, Maggie, it must be true, because it was last heard beating by very reliable witnesses in May 1940 during the evacuation of Dunkirk, which, by the way, was our retreat rather than the enemy's invasion. (laughs) But there you go. (laughs) Anyway, it does seem that it's the Victorians we have to thank for cementing Drake's position in our collective memory as a hero rather than a howler. But I am glad to say it does seem the tide is finally turning. Now, see, firstly, and I must admit, this did come as something as a surprise to me. Firstly, the initial pushback came from no less than the seamen and the powers that be of the Royal Navy themselves. You see, in 2013, Mikey, 
David Dimbleby, no less, you know, who's making his TV series Britain at Sea. And he proposed, yeah, some sort of dramatic finale to the show. Drake's lead-lined coffin, which had ended up being buried off the coast of Panama, it could be transported back home in all its glory on a royal naval man of war and buried in a location more fitting to his memory. In fact, he even nominated St. Paul's Cathedral itself. But the thing is, now, <laughs> the high command of the senior service, they might not be the sharpest tools in the box, as my old mate Commander Rupert Bradley will be the first to admit, but the one thing you can't knock the Navy for is loyalty and give or take the odd press gang integrity. Yeah. And funnily enough, no matter how much the producers on Dimbleby's show eulogise what great TV it would make, the overriding factor in the Navy's eyes was that this man, Drake, was bottom line a pirate, a brigand of the seas, and as such, for much of his life, the antithesis of what the British protectors of the high seas stood for. And when push came to shove, they point blank refused to cooperate and Drake's body never came home. But perhaps more telling, and certainly for me more heartening, is that in January of this year, 2023, the community that is the Sir Francis Drake Primary School in Lewisham, South East London, they voted overwhelmingly, and you know, don't forget this is a community with a substantial proportion of Afro-Caribbean families, families whose ancestors Drake not only enslaved but bought and sold like cattle. This community voted to change the name of that school and good on them that southeast london school is now known as the twin oaks all right folks so there you go any questions any comments just drop us a line on all your social media twitter facebook insta whichever you prefer that's right and always the same handle at the rest is hissed the rest is hissed and you'll find all that in the show notes and wherever you're listening don't forget to like subscribe comment on whichever platform you happen to use it's always good to get your feedback yes keep it all coming lots of fun and lots of maps <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to Paulie we've got guests galore each with their very own hero and howler <laughs>